good morning again, Coastal Church. How is everybody doing today? Everybody doing good? We are in the book of James chapter 1. We're going to be beginning at, be beginning at verse 5. Before we do so, while you find your places in your Bibles or electronic devices, want to share several announcements with you. Uh, the first announcement is uh, there's an update on Gloucester. Uh, in March 2020, we started raising funds to build a campus in Gloucester. And I want to deliver the exciting news that next Sunday we're going to have our groundbreaking. Amen. That is exciting. And so more information to follow. That's going to happen after service and Pastor Sean, after service next Sunday. And Pastor Sean will have a little bit more detailed information when he's back in the pulpit next week. Uh, second, our production team, uh, our sound team, they're going to be doing a training June 4th here at 9 a.m. And the lunch is going to be provided. So if you are interested in joining the production team, being on the camera, part of the sound crew, part of what goes on here on Sunday mornings and at various events, please go to our website at gocoastal.org slash events. And finally, uh, Free Kind, which is one of the ministries that we support here at Costosa, ministry that deals with uh, sex trafficking and uh, with helping young ladies um, that are endangered and educating people about sex trafficking, has an online training June 2nd, and you can also avail yourself of that information at gocoastal.org slash events. Again, we find ourselves in James chapter 1. We're going to be beginning at verse 5. Before we do so, let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, what a privilege to stand before your people and open up your word and have the opportunity to worship you by preaching. And so I ask this morning that you would minister to us personally in a special way, Lord, that you would Speak to us beyond my preparation or education and knowledge, Lord. God, that you would remove distractions, Lord. And we choose to give you praise because you've told us that we're two or three gathered in your name. There you are in the midst. And so we commit this time to you, Lord God, and pray that our lives would be enriched, encouraged, informed, instructed, and empowered so that we can continue to be transformed into the image of your dear son. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love the book of James because it is filled with so much godly practical wisdom. So much so that some have called it the book of Proverbs of the New Testament. Now, last week, Pastor Sean did a phenomenal job at covering verses 1 through 4. And if you have not heard that message, I would encourage you to do so. And as he mentioned last week, uh, this letter is directed to Christian believers who are dispersed because there is an intense persecution in Jerusalem. And in verses 1 through 4, these believers are encouraged to count it all joy because even though they are going through persecution, God was using that situation to develop their character. In the same way, when we find ourselves in difficult situations, we can count it all joy. Why? Because when we go through trials, 
we have an opportunity to let God mature us as we walk through these trials with him. So here in verse 5, he begins by telling them how to do it, by asking for wisdom. Verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, I know this verse is quoted a lot when we are asking God for general wisdom. It is quoted when we need to ask God for wisdom that leads to solutions to problems. Or this verse is quoted when we need to ask God to increase our ability to think strategically. Or we need to ask God to help us to know what to do about a specific situation. That's general wisdom. And we should pray for general wisdom. We should seek God for strategic insight and the ability to think with more depth and to know how to move forward. Oh, we see this in the life of King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter 20. King Jehoshaphat found himself surrounded by an immense army and so he decides to pray and fast in fact he invited the people of judah to fast and pray with him and part of his prayer during that time is recorded in second chronicles chapter 20 verse 12 where he said for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us we do not know what to do but this is the part that i like but our eyes are on you. Therefore, we should absolutely ask God for general wisdom. Those are all godly prayers. But that's not what this passage is talking about. And many times when we go through trials or tribulations or we are being persecuted or we endure some type of pain, we ask God, why am I going through this? What am I supposed to glean from this situation? And what James is referring to here is asking God for his view of our hardships. He is instructing us to ask God for his perspective of our difficulties in life. He instructs them to ask God for his perspective of our sufferings, which brings us to point number one. Ask God for his perspective. Now we have examples of this in the Bible. We have the story of Elisha and his servant. Elisha and his servant, they wake up one morning and they are surrounded by a Syrian army. And Elisha's servant panics and says to us, listen, we're surrounded by this Syrian army. And Elisha's reply is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, where he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. We also see this principle in the life of Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar and Ishmael were told to leave 
Abraham's house. And they set out on this journey and they had water. And as they are in the middle of the desert, they run out of water. And Hagar becomes discouraged and begins to cry. She separates herself from her son. And the angel of the Lord appears to her and encourages her. And in Genesis chapter 21, verse 19, the Bible tells us what happens. Then the Lord, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. In both these stories, God granted his perspective, which resulted in godly wisdom. In the same way, we are instructed to ask God for the wisdom that gives us his view of our pain. We are instructed to ask God for his wisdom that gives us his view of our suffering. We are instructed to ask God for wisdom that gives us his view of our trials and tribulation. This kind of wisdom allows us to see things through God's eyes. And when we have God's perspective, life makes sense. When we have God's perspective, life has meaning. And when we have this God-given perspective of our tribulations, we will have a much better sense of what to do and how to best navigate through them. In other words, God gives us his view of things which provides wisdom to act. Then in verse 6, he says, but let him ask in faith, which brings us to point number two, ask in faith. This verse is teaching us to pray in faith. He has already informed them that God is going to grant their request. It says that God will answer generously and without reproach, it will be given. In other words, God is not going to reprimand us or to scold us because we are asking him for wisdom. Instead, it says that the wisdom we seek will be provided. This speaks directly to the character of God. When we are asking for wisdom, we are asking him in faith on the basis of his character. When we ask him for wisdom, we are asking him in faith on the basis of his nature. We're asking him on the basis of his power. We're asking him on the basis of his grace. We are asking him in faith on the basis of his love for us. We're not praying on the basis of our good standing or our reputation or our good name. Instead, we are leaning into the promises of God and we ask God in faith. Now, I'd like to use this as an opportunity to highlight a broader application to this concept of asking God in faith. Uh, in the book of Daniel chapter 3, the Bible tells the story of three Hebrew young men. And these young men lived under a king who erected an 
image, he erected a statue, and he commanded everyone to bow before the statue. And whoever would not bow before the statue, when certain instruments were prayed, then they would be thrown immediately into a fiery furnace. Well, these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow when the music played and they were brought before the king. The king confronts them and says to them, Are you ready, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that when the instruments are played to bow before the image and worship the image that I have erected? Their response is recorded in Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, where we read, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These three young men were believing God for a favorable outcome. They said, he can and he will. In the same way, when we pray, we should believe that God would give us favorable outcomes. In the psalm, Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14, there's a wonderful verse that I love. David, in one of his prayers, says, I would have fainted. I would have lost heart. I would have become discouraged unless I would have believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And so shall he strengthen your heart. You see, these three young Hebrew men, their faith was firmly secure in the person of God. Their faith was firmly rooted in the goodness of God. Their faith was firmly rooted in the character of God. And even if God did not answer the prayer the way they were believing for, their faith was rooted in the sovereignty of God. Oh, that God would raise up people who pray like this. People who pray that, oh, he can and he will, but if he doesn't, he's still good. He can and he will, but if he doesn't, he's still almighty. He can and he will, but if he doesn't, he's still loving. He can and he will, but if he doesn't, he's still holy. He's still just. He's still God and he's still good. We must learn to ask in faith. Excuse me. Hebrews chapter 11 Verse 6 says these words, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those that come to him must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. This brings us to the second part of verse 6 where it says, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive 
anything from the Lord, which brings us to point number three. Ask without doubting. James says that when we doubt that we will be provided wisdom, we should not expect that we will receive anything from the Lord. Because when we doubt, we are demonstrating that we are wavering. When we doubt, we demonstrate that we are unsure about the character of God. We are unsure about the promises of God. The great prince of preachers, C.H. Spurgeon, once said, and I quote, Doubt discovers difficulties which it never solves. Believe the word which speaks life, end quote. James describes believers who doubt as a wave. A wave goes back and forth. The wave has no stability. The wave is not rooted. The wave is not fixed. Oh, we see this uh, doubt in Peter's life in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus had come to the disciples walking on the water after a storm. And when Peter sees Jesus walking on the water, he says to him, Master, if it's you, ask me to come to the water to you. Jesus said, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and becomes the second man in history who walked on water. But the Bible says that he became distracted by the winds and the wave. And he took his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to sink. And Jesus' response is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, where it says this. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why? you doubt. When we entertain doubt, we are being distracted away from the person of God. When we entertain doubt, we are being distracted away from the word of God. I believe American writer Arthur Golden said it well when he wrote, a mind troubled with doubt cannot focus on the course of victory ahead, end quote. Another place we see doubt is when Jesus was speaking to his disciples on a mountain in Galilee after his resurrection. And even then, some doubted. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. And when they saw him, the resurrected Christ, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Sometimes we can doubt God even when he has made it clearly plain to us that he is who he says he is. When we pray, we must not doubt God because doubt will cause us to take the focus away from the one we are praying to, who is God. Now, as a little side note to prayer, let me say this. Sometimes we can become more focused on the words that we're saying that we are God. Sometimes we can become more focused on our surroundings or our preferences and we lose focus and we miss out on the awesome opportunity for fellowship with God. And this too causes us to begin to doubt our prayers. I'd like to encourage you to ask yourself a question. 
when you pray, are you more aware of things or are you more aware of God? When you pray, whether you pray with your eyes open or your eyes closed, is, this, is there this sense that God is here? When you pray, is there this sense that God hears me? Let us remember that God is holy. God is righteous. He is powerful. He is mighty and merciful. He is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. We must not allow ourselves to doubt his character, his word, or his promises. We must take an attitude that says, I am not going to allow trials to distract me from God. I am not going to allow persecutions to distract me from God. I am not going to allow pain to distract me from God. Before there was a who, a what, a where, or a how, he is God, and he's still worthy, and he's still awesome, and he's still powerful, and our focus and our adoration and our praise needs to be to him at all time, for he is the King of kings and Lord of lords forever. Amen. When we pray, we must acknowledge that he is present. Just as the person that is sitting next to you is present, just like my voice in this room is present, we must acknowledge that he is present. Remember, you're praying to an audience of one. He is a God who hears he is a God who is there. He is a very present help in the time of need. Now, that being said, there are times that we can struggle and battle with doubt and unbelief in our hearts. We see an example of this in Mark chapter 9. There was this man who had a son who, had, who, who was attacked by a spirit, an evil spirit. And this evil spirit would throw him into the water, would throw him into the fire. And he brought his son to the disciples to cast out the evil spirit. And they couldn't. Jesus comes to the scene, and he asked the father a question. He said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? The father's response is recorded for us in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, where he says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Even when we are trying our best to believe God and to trust him, doubts can arise in our hearts. Unbelief can threaten to distract us. But we have to remind ourselves that God is greater than our doubts. God is greater than our fears. God is greater than our anxieties. God is greater than our feelings of inadequacies. He is greater than any emotion or sinful thought that our hearts can produce. In fact, 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 says, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Therefore, whenever we are battling our doubts, we must remind ourselves that, A, God is faithful to his word. 
What does it mean when we say that God is faithful? When we say that God is faithful, it means that he is totally trustworthy. He is perfectly faithful. He is faithful to his covenant. He is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his design for salvation. He is faithful to his eternal purposes. But most important, God is faithful to God. He is faithful to his own character. Therefore, when we pray to God and ask God for wisdom, we must not allow ourselves to succumb to doubt because we are asking on the basis of his faithfulness and not our own merits. He is the one who said, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. This is why verse 8 in James says, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Uh, the word double-minded is the Greek word dipsuke, which means two souls. Oh, Elijah dealt with this uh, with the children of Israel as he was confronting them. He says, listen, if, how long will you dwell between two opinions? How long will you vacillate between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. And if Baal, who is an idol God, serve him. Have you ever had to make a decision and you knew it was the right decision to make, but you were still conflicted about making it. It, felt, it feels like your heart is divided, almost like you're having a church split inside of you. Maybe even to the point of being emotionally stressed. And this is what this passage is alluding to about being double-minded. There is a beautiful prayer that speaks to this in Psalm 86, verse 11, where it says, Show me your way so I can walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. He is praying that God would give him an undivided heart. Because a divided heart will cause us to make erratic choices, which brings us to number four. Doubting God brings instability in our walk. Too often, we can allow the things we see, the things we feel, the things we think, or the things we experience to bring us to a place of uncertainty. We feel unsure about whether or not God will be to us who he promised to be. And this will affect our behavior and our attitudes. Being double-minded speaks of unstable beliefs. And when our beliefs are unstable, our behavior will become unstable. We are not walking in completeness when we are double-minded. Christ has made us complete. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, whoever walks in his integrity walks securely. The word integrity there is the Hebrew word tom, which carries the idea of being complete or being whole. In fact, the uh, English word integrity comes from a Latin word. I know this is a little nerdy for 8 o'clock in the morning. And integra, which also means complete and whole. The Bible teaches us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are 
complete in Christ. And in order to walk security, securely or to have a stable walk, we must acknowledge that Christ has made us complete. This is our position. We are complete in Christ. And regardless of our condition, we have to remember that A, our position is greater than our condition. We have eternal life. We have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Our adoption in Christ will always outweigh whatever difficulty we may experience in this life. As we continue our reading there in verse 9, we read, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James speaks to both the rich and the poor. And he lets them know that their social status is temporary. To the poor says you can boast because you will be lifted up on high in the presence of Christ. And to the rich he says you can boast because in the presence of God you have been made a lowly sinner like everyone else. Those who have material wealth should remember that riches are temporary and that one's real condition before God is a very humble one. The cross of Christ lifts up the poor and brings down the rich. It is a great leveler. Both the rich and the poor can boast in God because they both receive the true wealth that comes from Christ, eternal life. Everyone is the same at the foot of the cross. Then he mentions the grass that withers and the flower that falls. In other words, our condition in this world is temporary. This brings us to point number five. Remind yourself that the advantages or disadvantages of this life will eventually fade. One of my favorite verses is found in the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 18 where Paul speaks to this. He says, for I reckon or I recognize or I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 says, says this, While we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Remember, our focus is on eternity. As many of you know, I was uh, married to my first wife for 20 years before she passed of cancer. And the last couple of weeks of her life, she was in severe pain. And she had this grimace on her face. And I made the stupid choice of asking her, are you angry with God? And she gave me the wifey look. What are you talking about? If he heals me? I win. 
But if he doesn't heal me, I go to be with him and I win. Don't you ever ask me a dumb question like that again. She understood something, which brings us to number A. An eternal mindset always prevails. Do you have an eternal mindset? Do you know that you have eternal life? Folks, God provides eternal life. Our focus needs to be on eternal life. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says, set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. That is to those of you who are Christians. For those of you who may not be Christians, I have good news for you. Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And the reason he died is because we were born into sin. The scripture says that we were by nature children of wrath. And we of our own volition cannot meet the righteous requirements of God. God is perfect and holy and we are not. Therefore, he sends his son to earth who is God in the flesh and lived a perfect life and died on the cross. He was buried and placed in a tomb and rose again from the dead to give us the hope of eternal life and to prove that he, in fact, was God in the flesh. And now... When we repent of our sins, when we believe the gospel, we believe that Jesus died as a substitute for our sins and we receive Christ, we have eternal life. Have you confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior? The Bible says this in Romans chapter 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Not talking about your grandfather. Not talking about your father. Not talking about your brother or your sister. Talking about you. Have you made a public confession of faith? Is there ever a time where you have repented of your sins because you acknowledge that you are a sinner and received Christ? Confessing. As your Lord and Savior. If not, there are going to be some wonderful people to pray with you about these things underneath the screens. And there will be some people to pray with you back there in the chapel. For those of you who are Christians, maybe today you feel like you need wisdom for a specific situation. Maybe you feel like uh, you need God's perspective of something that you are dealing with. Maybe you're struggling with doubt. Or you need God to encourage your faith. I want to encourage you not to leave this place without having someone pray for you. God wants to minister to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word. Thank you, Lord God, because your word says, Father, that it goes forth and it accomplishes whatever you want. And so, Lord, we thank you because we trust that there will be fruit and fruit that remains in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me so that we can worship?